The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. I praise the Lord for the opportunity to be here and stand before you and uh I'm grateful to Pastor George for giving me the opportunity to break the bread of life to the saints at BBC, to, to open the scriptures. And uh, in the Bible, we find God warning his people that it might take three to four generations to root out sin that was practiced by an earlier generation. And in the giving of the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, God says in Exodus chapter 20, and uh, if you're quick with your fingers or your phone or tablet, you could turn to Exodus 20 verses 4 through 6 where it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, of, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commands. This is repeated a second and a third time in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and in chapter 7. Now, the Bible isn't saying that children will be punished for what the fathers did. That's not what it's saying. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 tells us that the sons shall not be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 also says the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. It says, the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. The point of the truths taught in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 7 is that children would experience the impact of their parents' disobedience to God's law and hatred of him. Children brought up by ungodly parents would naturally incline themselves toward disobedience and hatred of God and his law. And with each ungodly generations, sin and wickedness would be rooted deeper and it would take several generations to reverse the ungodly pattern. The Exodus and Deuteronomy passages let us know that the father's sin visits or impacts the lives of his children. Let me explain how this might happen. The father's rebellion is passed on to his children by reason of association. If the father is a liar or a cheat, a thief or a con artist, his son, learning from his father, might in all probability grow up to be like his father. And the calamities or tragedies of judgment for the father's sin are visited upon the children, much like a child might be injured or killed as a result of being caught up in a drug turf war his father was involved in. And sometimes God, as we know from, we know from Scripture, that sometimes God punishes the fathers by bringing calamity upon the child as he did when King David sinned with uh, or sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. God judged David by not letting the baby 
live. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 10 through 11 says, For what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? It is because your forefathers have forsaken me. And as unfair as it might seem to us, our sovereign God has the right to punish fathers using the tragedies that come upon their children. And we even see this acknowledged uh, in a small way by an unbelieving world, though they rarely attribute it to God's judgment, even the secular world sees this happening. A quick browse of the internet on the subject, this subject you're going to find a lot of information on the category of breaking the cycle of family dysfunction. And some of the family dysfunction dealt with by the professionals are sexual abuse and verbal abuse, drugs, drinking, pathological lying, narcissism, multiple sibling rivalries, parent-child conflicts, domestic violence, mental illness, single parenthood, alcohol or drug abuse, extramarital affairs, gambling, unemployment. But in the, in the event that you feel like after hearing that list that people are without hope, there is good news. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God says, When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sins and practices righteousness and justice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. And in Psalm 103, we find these words, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He, for he himself, knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Jesus came to save us from our sins. My wife, Debbie, and I both grew up in Baltimore City, and we both grew up in homes without Christ as Lord and Savior. My wife's mother had Debbie when she was only 15, and Debbie had two children by the time she was 14. And I also had a child out of wedlock. Both Deb and I met each other at the age of 20 when both of us had recently become followers of Jesus Christ. We married at the age of 22 with an instant family of three children. And since that time, God blessed us with five more children for a total of eight, seven daughters and a son. And, and in the mid to late 1980s, we began to attend a church where the elders exposited the scripture much like they do here at BBC, and we began to learn about God's design for marriage and for parenting. And since that time, we've tried to live in submission to Scripture, and God has given us over 41 years of marriage together. And we now have 17 grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. I wish I could tell you that Deb and I have unfeigned devotion to Christ each and every day, but we don't. What I can tell you is that God's Word has been doing the work of sanctification in our lives over the years, and the Spirit of God has been conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. 
And again, using the scriptures that Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer of John 17, saying, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. One section of scripture that God has used in my life is the book of Proverbs. And I appreciate Pastor George. <laughs> I didn't expect a plug from the pulpit, my book, but thank you, Pastor. But Proverbs is a resource manual that fathers use to teach their sons. In many of the translations, the modern translations have changed the word son in these pages to child or children. One version of the Bible uses the word my friends, but it's better translated my sons. My sons. Fathers are to teach their sons. Not because the Bible is teaching that men are better than women, but because men who have been called to leadership roles in the home and church are on average more rebellious than women when it comes to fulfilling their roles in the home and in society. And you can see the rebelliousness of men today through the ratio of men and women found in the church. The results of a poll taken had um, those who had a certainty of belief in God, 69% of were women and 57% men. Those who attended church, 61% women, 39% men. Those who believe in prayer, 64% women, 46% men. Those attend a small group, a church small group, 27% women, 21% men. When a woman or who is a wife and mother follow, follows Jesus, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, her husband and her children might follow her in repentance and faith toward God. But studies show that when the man, when the husband and the father comes to know Jesus as Savior and King, there's a higher probability that the entire family will live to obey the commands of Christ. And this may be a hard scene. But rebellion against God and the resulting dysfunction that is passed down to the family from generation to generation is to be laid at the feet of men. And as fathers go, so goes the family. And so goes the nation. And throughout Scripture, we find the Lord's judgment on His people was directed, uh, directly connected to the Father's decision not to follow the Lord in His Word and to rebel against the Lord. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in verses 1 through 3, we find Moses speaking to the children of Israel. And Moses says, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days would uh, may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. In Daniel's prayer of repentance recorded in chapter 9 of his book, we find these words. You don't need to turn to it. Daniel 9, verse 5 and 6 says, Daniel prays, We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances, Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, 
the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. Where the word of the Lord came to the prophet to speak to the Jews living in Judah and Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 2 through 6. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now these verses are addressed to the nation of Israel, but in particular, they're, they're, they're addressing the fathers and the grandfathers because of their leadership role according to Scripture, and because of the responsibility of fathers in the perpetuation of the faith in their children. And so today we're going to look at a book where we find a father pleading with his son to fear the Lord and to know wisdom and instruction. We're going to look at the book of Proverbs. Turning your Bible to the book of Proverbs. And the major theme of the book of Proverbs is becoming wise through the fear of the Lord. And the words wise and wisdom are used at least 125 times because the promise or excuse me, the purpose of this book is to help us acquire and apply God's wisdom to how we live and the decisions that we make each day. And there's a phrase, the fear of the Lord, this phrase uh it refers to a reverential affection, submission, and devotion to God. This phrase, the fear of the Lord, is used 14 times in Proverbs because it is the beginning of knowledge. And so we're told in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord keeps you away from evil. It prolongs life. It, it says it's a fountain of life. It leads to life. It rewards with riches, honor, and life. It is better than great treasure, the fear of the Lord. In the book of Proverbs, there's 31 chapters of wisdom sayings, one for each day of the month, some collected by Solomon and others authored by him. And while most of the chapters in Proverbs were written by Solomon, other Proverbs were the result of God's Spirit also moving on the men of Hezekiah. We see that in Proverbs 25. And Agur, the son of Jacob, Proverbs chapter 30. And King Lemuel, who's probably Solomon, who wrote in Proverbs 31 what his mother taught him. And according to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs. But the book of Proverbs contains only a total of 800, which more than likely are the ones that Solomon both composed and collected. Let me give you some background. In 1, Corinthians, 1, Corinthians, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 46, the kingdom was established in the hands of, 
of Solomon, the son of King David. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God speaks to him in a dream, saying to Solomon, ask what you wish me to give you. And God tells Solomon that because he didn't ask for long life and and riches or the death of his enemies, that he would be given a wise and discerning heart along with all the other things that he didn't ask for. But reading further in 1 Kings chapter 3, we find God telling Solomon that if he would only follow him and keep his statutes and commandments as his father David did, he would be given a long life. Now in Proverbs chapter 1, turn to Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon writes to his son Rehoboam, telling him not to forget his law and commandments. And these are the same statutes and commandments that God was referring to in 1 Kings chapter 3. And according to Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and you can turn to that quickly, the same commandments Solomon received from his father, David. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 says, Hear, O sons of father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Verse 3, when I was a son with my father, that's David, tender, the only one in sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Now, where did David get the law and the commandments? David acknowledged that God's law came through Moses. In Psalm chapter 103, David writes that he, God, made known his ways to Moses. David revered the law of God. He loved the law of God. In Psalm 119, which many people believe that David authored, we find the longest discourse in the Bible on the all-sufficiency of the word of God and the blessings of applying it to your life. And David writes, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. And if you dig deep enough, you're going to find in the book of Proverbs allusions to each of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. You can just go through Proverbs and you'll find allusions to each one of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. And even more amazing is that you'll find allusions to the Ten Commandments in in Agur's three-verse prayer of Proverbs chapter 30. Verse 7 through 9. Now, in fact, why don't you go to uh, Proverbs chapter 30. Look at that quickly with me. You find allusions to the Ten Commandments in three verses. He says in verse 7 of Proverbs 30, Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far From me, do not give me poverty or riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I might become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. Hmm. The book of Proverbs is the lesson book or the life manual on living, which the Hebrew fathers taught their sons. And it's very apparent that the father in Proverbs was writing to his son. You can just start off with chapter one and go through the book and you'll you'll read uh, 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 words like, hear my son, your father's instruction. 
Chapter 2, my son, if you receive my sayings. Chapter 3, my son, do not forget my teaching. Chapter 4, hear, oh, uh, my son, and accept my sayings. My son, give attention to my words. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Chapter 6, my son. Uh, chapter 7, my son, keep my words. It just goes on and on through out the book of Proverbs. So the entire book of Proverbs is des- divinely designed for a father to teach his son. Even in chapter 31 of Proverbs, the chapter about the excellent wife, were words given to Solomon by his mother to teach him how to be a righteous ruler and to guide him in finding a virtuous woman to take as his wife. Sons will eventually become fathers, and as fathers go, so go the nations, and so go generations, and so goes history. And so God took the basic principles of spiritual living according to his wisdom and compressed them into 31 chapters of Proverbs. Now, this afternoon, we're going to be looking at just the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3. And I just called it five admonitions from a father to a son. And an admonition is an earnest yet gentle advice or counsel. And so we're going to look at the admonition to remember the Lord's law and commandments, the admonition to trust the Lord with all your heart, the admonition to fear the Lord and depart from evil, the admonition to honor the Lord with your wealth, and then lastly, the admonition to submit to the Lord's discipline. And that was just the introduction. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Help us to understand these exhortations from Proverbs. You know that we, what we stand in need of individually, you know what we stand in need of collectively. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you. Oh Lord, my rock, redeemer in Jesus' name. Amen. The admonition to remember the Lord's laws and commandments. Look at verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my Commandments, Solomon is speaking to his son, Rehoboam, and we've seen that Solomon was taught the law and commandments from David, his father, who received them from Moses, who received them from the Lord. So Solomon obviously passed them on to his son and now is asking his son to keep them. Obedience to the law and commands is the state of the heart. Thus Solomon writes, let your heart keep my commandments. And in verse 5, Solomon writes, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Fathers are commanded by Scripture to teach the word of God to their children, to pour it, as it were, the law and commandments of God into into the hearts of their children. We find the result in verse 2. For they shall add length of days and long life and peace to you. And so these these are, are, are benefits from letting... Uh, your heart keep the commandments of God, they shall add length of days, long life, and peace to you. And so these benefits in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 2, they're being snatched today from our children. Length of days, long life, peace, all benefits that are denied children due to a deficit of God's Word taught in the home. Today, our children... They're having their childhood years taken from them. They're, they're no longer allowed to be children. They're being forced to surrender their innocence. They're being coerced to grow up too fast to reject God and live immorally. School children are being held hostage to subject matter 
that they're being taught such as sexual orientation and gender identity. School districts of cities across the nation are financing the presence of, of drag queens in public elementary schools serving children as young as three. Children are being read LGBTQ-based stories and taught how to apply drag makeup. A state attorney general recently said drag queens make everything better and there should be a drag queen for every school. The innocence of children is being robbed through online abuses. They observe images on their smartphones no one should be looking at, chatting with people they have no business communicating with. In 2020, there were roughly 618,999 reported cases of child abuse in the United States. And the most common form of abuse was neglect. In 2020, roughly five children died each day of abuse and neglect. And so we're living in a day when with difficulty children go up to grow up to see length of days and long life. And many children no longer experience peace. The word peace at the end of Proverbs chapter 3 verse 2 is a Hebrew word shalom which means peace of mind, but it also includes God's favor, good health, rest, safety. A quick drive through the impoverished and Blighted areas of our city, you're going to find many of our young people looking like they're missing this peace. Their faces are twisted and contorted by the emotions of anger and bewilderment and depression. Their body language communicates insecurity, pain, and loneliness. There's no peace in the lives of many of our inner city children. And at the other end of the economic spectrum, peace is missing from the lives of the affluent. An article on psychology. Um, psychologytoday.com, it says the offspring of the affluent today, the affluent today are more distressed than other youth. They show disturbingly high rates of substance abuse, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, cheating and stealing. It gives a whole new meaning to having it all. Antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, stimulants, antipsychotics and mood stabilizers, which are typically prescribed to adults to treat depression and anxiety, they're now being prescribed to children. So whether poor, rich, length of days, and long life and peace is missing from the lives of our children because the knowledge of the law and the commandments of God is missing from their hearts. Look at verse 3. It says, Let not kindness and truth forsake you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Solomon mentioned the word heart in verse 1, and he does so again in verse 3. Proverbs 23, verse 7 tells us that a person thinks in his heart, and so kindness and truth need to be active as a child thinks. Scholars say the Hebrew word kindness, kesed, is difficult to translate in English because it really doesn't have any precise equivalent in our English language. And English versions usually try to represent it with such words as loving kindness, mercy, sometimes loyalty. But the word conveys the idea of steadfastness and persistence of God's absolute love for his covenant people. And we see this illustrated in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, where the word said is, is used to describe man's steadfastness, or rather the lack of it. The ESV uses the word beauty, and the NASB uses loving uh, loveliness. And the prophet contrasts man's frailty with God's steadfast reliability. 
And so Isaiah is writing that men's, man's steadfastness is like green grasses. It's like wildflowers that cover the hills of Judah. Here today, gone tomorrow, but the word of our God his stead, and his steadfast love for Israel stands forever. And we see God's steadfast love on display in Micah chapter 7. Why don't you turn to Micah chapter 7? Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. And that's that Hebrew word, said. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob. And here it is again, unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. And so in Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon was encouraging his son not to forget, he said, kindness. And as we'll see in a moment, to put it on display. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, loving kindness is coupled with truth. Truth is what is right according to God's word, not according to one's old de definition or understanding, as Solomon warns his son in verse 5. Kindness and truth are to be worn around your neck, not literally, but figuratively. In other words, kindness and truth were to see were to be seen outwardly in Ray and Boehm's life, they were to be written on the tablet of his heart. And this was foreshadowing the new covenant relationship with God that Jeremiah wrote about in chapter 31 of his book. I will put my law within them and I will write them on their heart. So in, in Proverbs 3, we find a father encouraging his son to remember the law and commandments of God, to honor the law and commandments, to tie kindness and truth around his neck. In other words, to internalize, internalize kindness and truth by writing them on the tablets of his heart. Remember David's words in Psalm 119.11, he wrote, Your word I have what? Treasure in my heart that I may not sin against you. Look at verse 4. So you will find favor and good repute. Good repute, that's discretion, that's knowledge. In the sight of God and man. There is a special grace that God is willing to abundantly bestow on those who obey him. The scripture says the rain, the sun rises on the good and the evil and the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's in Matthew 5. God provides for all of humanity, but he has a special grace for those who keep his word. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield unto us. The Lord will give grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's favor is an unmerited grace, but it's not given without conditions. God's favor is bestowed on the one who holds to his truth and writes it on the tablet of his heart, lives it out before God and man. The words good repute in Proverbs 3 verse 4 refer to the discretion and understanding that God gives when one adorns and treasures kindness and truth. One translation says that this person will have good success in the sight of God. Amen. And so God's favor is bestowed to those who honor him, walk upright before him, and obey him. So Solomon admonishes his son in verse 5 to trust Yahweh, to trust Yahweh. 
And this leads us to, to the second point in our outline. The admonition to trust the Lord with all your heart. Verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Trust is a word that means to lie helpless face down. In complete confidence and security. Psalm 37 gives the sense of it as David writes, rest in the Lord. Then wait patiently for Him. Do not fret. Because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, for it only leads to evil doing. So back in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Solomon tells his son Rehoboam to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Notice the capitalization of the word Lord, unless you have a LSB. This is the word Yahweh. The only almighty, true, personal, holy God who revealed himself to his people, who made a covenant with them and became their lawgiver. Yahweh is the name of the only self-existent or self-sufficient being. The only one who has life in and of himself, the I am and the most high God. The most high God stated 42 times in scripture to whom all glory, honor and worship are due. He is worthy, as the song says. In other words, Rehoboam was not only to trust God as Elohim, the infinite, all-powerful God who is the creative, sustainer, and supreme judge of the world. He was to trust God as Yahweh, the personal covenant God, the one who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who made a covenant with Moses and King David, the one who promises to bless his people Israel if they kept his commandment, the one who also promised to judge them if they disobeyed. Solomon's son was to trust in Yahweh, not his own riches, not his own strength, not in his own wisdom, not in his education, not in his family line, not in his royal privileges, not in his own heart. He was to trust in Yahweh, not half-heartedly, not unenthusiastically or lackadaisically. He was to trust in the Lord with all his heart. And when Solomon uses the words with all your heart, he wasn't just speaking of the strength of his son's faith. He was also speaking of the sincerity or the intensity and the, even the extent of his son's faith. To the Jew living in Solomon's day, the heart carried a broader meaning than we use it today. Today, the heart is frequently used to refer to the organ, the physical organ, or our physical life, or the emotions. Songs and poems and everything speak of the heart being the symbol of, of love. But for the Hebrew, the term heart is associated with physical life. Remember when Nabal's wife told him about the threat of David? The Bible says his heart died within him and he became a stone. Physical life and then uh, emotions. Leviticus 9, 19 verse 17 says, you shall not hate a brother in your heart. So the physical, the emotions, and then the mind. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God tells Moses and the children of Israel that when they entered the land, they were to call to mind. That's that word, same word, mind, his words. And so in Proverbs 3, verse 5, it's associated with thinking and, and remembering and, and emotion. It also has to do with wisdom, as uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 10 says, For when you discern righteousness, justice, equity, and every good way, wisdom will come into your heart. In other words, in his thinking, 
in his remembering, in his feelings, Rehoboam was to trust in the Lord with a heart that was fixated on the law and the commandments of God. He was to trust the Lord with his whole heart. Look at verse 5 again. We find a, a positive and a negative admonition. The positive is to trust in the Lord with all your heart. The negative is do not lean unto your own understanding. Put another way, Solomon was telling his son, don't rest on your, your own understanding or wisdom. Remember, as God said in Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the wise glory in their own wisdom. In verse 6 of Proverbs 3, Solomon writes, in all your ways acknowledge him. In other words, don't rest on your own wisdom, but only that wisdom which comes from Yahweh. And Solomon writes in Proverbs 28, verse 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So what, what, what wisdom is Solomon talking about here? Well, he illustrates this wisdom and understanding to his son in six ways. Look with me at verses 13 through 24. Chapter 3, Proverbs 3, 13 through 24. We find uh, six ways that Solomon illustrates this wisdom and understanding to his son. He, he lets his son know that God's wisdom is profitable. Look at verse 13 and 14. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. God's wisdom is profitable, it's precious or valuable. Verse 15 says she is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Thirdly, God's wisdom is perpetual. Long life, verse 16 says, is in her, her right hand. Verse 18, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Verses 21 through 22, keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul. God's wisdom is pleasant and peaceful. Verse 17, her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. God's wisdom is protective. Verse 23 through 24 says, pursue, keep wisdom. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Then lastly, God's wisdom is powerful. Look at verses 19 and 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies dripped with dew. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So who would be so foolish as to trade the profitable, precious, pleasant, peaceful, protective, and powerful wisdom of God for something so deficient as man's wisdom? And as James writes in his epistle, something that's earthly, natural, and demonic. Who, who would trade God's wisdom for that? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 that this kind of wisdom is foolish, crafty, and useless. So Rehoboam was not to lean on his own understanding, his, his own wisdom. He was back in Proverbs 3, verse 6, to acknowledge the Lord in all his ways. And the word in all your ways is a Hebrew word that refers to the whole area or the course of your life's actions. Everything you are, everything you do, both secular and spiritual, public and private, is to honor God. The same word is used in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Rehoboam was not merely to call on God when he was in worship or in trouble. But he was to be all he could be for God. He was to live for God. Not just talk to talk, but walk to walk. 
In all his ways, Solomon's son was being admonished to acknowledge Yahweh. Today, when we think of knowledge, we think of acquiring what you need for a job, go to school, take a course, learn a trade. But in Solomon's day, knowledge had to do with how a person related to his family, how a person related to a circle of friends. Survival depended uh, heavily on your ability to learn um, a skill, to, to trust people, to, to work and to get along with another person. You survive by the relationships that you develop. And so this word acknowledge is the Hebrew word yada, and it has to do with relationships. The more knowledge you have of a person, the more intimate you are with that person. And this is why the word yada is used for sexual relations between a husband and wife. And in the ESV, in the King James Version, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 says, Adam knew his wife Eve. Same word. And a sexual relationship to the ancient Hebrews was the ultimate in, in, in being intimate and knowing someone. Let me give you uh, just a quick background. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 28. First Chronicles chapter 28. And here we find King David giving a charge to Israel. And in this charge, David points out to Israel that God told him, that because he was a man of war, he, he wouldn't be building a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, but his son Solomon would. So in First Chronicles 28, verse 8, David ends his charge to Israel with these words. So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it. Uh, to your sons after you forever. And then after this, David turns to his son Solomon and charges him. And this will give us a little bit more insight on what Solomon may have had in his mind when he was admonishing his son Rehoboam in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. David says in verse 9 of 1 Chronicles 28, As for you, my son Solomon, know, that's the word yada, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts, and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And so perhaps Solomon had his father David's words in mind when he charged his own son, Rehoboam, in, in, in Proverbs 3, verse 6. Solomon warned his son to know Yahweh intimately. To know Yahweh as he revealed himself in Scripture. To to to. Know what distinguishes the Lord from the false gods of the nations. To know him by experience. To know and to serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. So Solomon tells his son in verse 6 that if he acknowledges Yahweh, Yahweh would make his path straight. The ancient Hebrews were uh, nomadic people and it, it was important to travel paths correctly to pastures, to campsites, and and if these straight paths were not followed, you can get lost in the desert, wilderness. The straight path doesn't mean the easy path. And oftentimes, the straight path took a traveler right through the treacherous and the dangerous terrain of that area. Curvy roads are curvy because they avoid the more challenging, more costly, more demanding route. Jesus took the straight path to the cross. Let me interject that here. It was the right path. 
Satan tried to detour him from it, but Jesus stayed on the straight path. And as scripture says, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Solomon tells his son, if he acknowledges Yahweh, Yahweh would make his path straight. In other words, if Rehoboam simply trusted in the Lord with all his heart and didn't lean onto his own understanding, if, if, if he knew Yahweh intimately as he has revealed himself in scripture, if Rehoboam knew the teaching, the attributes, and the character of the Lord, which distinguished him from the false gods of the nations. If he served the Lord with a whole heart and with a willing mind, God would lead him on a straight path. And though there might be some suffering for righteousness' sake, it would be the right path. And that path would bring glory to God. So Solomon admonished his son to trust the Lord with all his heart. Here's our third point. And he admonished his son to fear the Lord and depart from evil. And I just want to let you know these last points are going to be a lot shorter than the, than the earlier ones. Look at verse 7. It tells us that if Rehoboam was not wise in his own eyes and if he would only fear or reverence the Lord and depart from evil, then God, verse 8, would sustain him spiritually, emotionally, emotionally and physically. And as we come to trust the Lord... As we learn to reverence him, as we reverence the Lord, we learn to trust him more. We draw near to him. And as we draw near to him, the more we'll desire to depart from evil. That's the sequence. And verse 8 says the result would be healing to your navel and marrow to your bones. And in this verse, marrow, verse 8, is regarded as the center or the seat of strength. Solomon was telling his son that if God is the source of wisdom and the one who directs his life, just as the umbilical cord channeled the life-giving nourishment from the mother to the baby in her womb, God would nourish and strengthen his soul. And even the medical experts of our day know the benefits of healthy bone marrow. Marrow is said to be the blood cell factory. And without bone marrow, our bodies would not produce the white cells that we need to fight infection, the red blood cells we need to carry oxygen, and the platelets that we need to stop bleeding. Perhaps Solomon is telling his son, that good health is connected to obedience to God's commands. Continuing in verse 8 and 9, Solomon goes on to teach his son that financial and material blessing is related to whether he is honoring the Lord. And this is our fourth point. Admonition to honor the Lord from your wealth. Look at verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. Solomon is telling his son that whatever God sends in the way of prosperity, there is always to be a portion of it set aside in order to honor the Lord. We ignore this and we don't show gratitude and worship and offering back the first fruits of our increase. Well, that's to bite the hand of him who feeds us. And our brother Jeff did a, just a wonderful job on that subject last Sunday, so I'm going to defer to his message from last week. Let's go on. Amen. So fathers are to admonish their children to remember the Lord's law and commandments, to admonish their children to trust the Lord with all your heart, to admonish their children to fear the Lord and depart from evil, to admonish their children to, to honor the Lord from their wealth. And so here's the last admonition of Solomon to his son that we're going to look at today. The admonition to submit to the Lord's discipline. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, My son... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. 
And so we, we see from here that our Heavenly Father has this infinite love for His children, and because of this love, He disciplines them. And God doesn't discipline His children because He delights in bringing pain and, and misery into our lives. God disciplines us because He loves us. The word reject in Proverbs 3 is the same Hebrew word used in Numbers 11 where the children of Israel rejected the Lord as they said to Moses, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat for we were well off in Egypt. In verses 19 through 20, God says to this people, and I'm paraphrasing, you want meat? <laughs> you want meat? I'll give you meat for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils because you rejected me, the Lord. Same word, it's used in 1 Samuel 8 where Yahweh says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me from being king over them. The word loathe in verse 11 of Proverbs 3 is a word that means to be distressed, grieved, weary, or anxious. Rehoboam was not to be grieved by the Lord's correction. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 12 says, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Debbie and I, we... Like, back we just watched just about every day the old reruns from the 1950s and 60s of Leave it to Beaver. And on one episode, Beaver and Wally's friends had parents who seemed not to care about anything they did. Uh, right or wrong, Beaver and Wally's friends had parents that uh, just... Didn't care. They, they, they can go out and do things and their parents didn't even give a response. And so Beaver and Wally's friends were envious that Ward and June Cleaver loved their children enough to discipline them when they did wrong. Turn to, he, uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, the writer of Hebrews writes, my son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son he receives. And so the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expands on the text from Proverbs 3, telling us that as a loving father, God disciplines those he receives as legitimate children. So God loves us. He wants us to be part of the family. So he disciplines those he receives as legitimate children. It proves that we are his children when he disciplines us. And then verse 9 of Hebrews 12 says he disciplines us so that we might live. God disciplines us, verse 10 tells us, for our good that we may share his holiness. Without holiness, no one will see God. Verse 11 says God disciplines to train us to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. And the writer of Hebrews may still have Proverbs 3 on his mind when he exhorts his readers in verse 13 to make straight paths for your feet and pursue, pursue peace and sanctification with all men. So in, in summary, God disciplines us and he does so to help us no matter how the experience hurts us because God disciplines us in love, it will never harm us. We find the emotion of this truth. This is the last place we're going to turn to. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, as I, as I wind it up. We're down. Whichever way you understand the metaphor. Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. It says, all the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Verse 5, thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So back in Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon pours out his heart to his son Rehoboam. And in the balance of this chapter, chapter 3 of Proverbs, Solomon pleads with his son, verse 13, to seek after wisdom. Verse 20, to cling to the knowledge of God. Verse 23 through 26, to be secure in the Lord, to be charitable, verse 27, 28. He teaches his son in verse 29 not to plant evil against his neighbor. In verses 31 through 35, Solomon teaches his son not to envy the wicked. But sadly, Solomon didn't live out the law and commandments. He admonished his son Rehoboam to obey. And the Bible doesn't even try to cover this up. It tells us of the wonderful opportunity a loving father has to teach his children, but it also shows us in graphic detail what happens when the same father doesn't practice what he preaches. And it appears that because of Solomon's hypocrisy and disobedience to God, we find that in 1 Kings 11, that Rehoboam eventually rejected his father's teaching and his father's God. When he became king, Rehoboam's rebellious pride split the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. And with the aid of his wife, an Ashtoreth worshiper, Rehoboam ignored the Lord's command. He built pagan shrines, allowing for immoral and sinful practices. And the remainder of Rehoboam's years summarized in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. He did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. And as I've grown older, it's been my constant prayer that I would finish well. And Solomon started off great as a man and as a father, but he didn't finish well. At the beginning of his reign, the Bible says in 1 Kings 3, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon loved many foreign wives. Verse 3 in chapter uh, 1 Kings 11 tells us that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And as Solomon aged, these wives turned his heart away from Yahweh to follow after other gods like the Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, whose worship was noted for sensuality, for its ritual, for its male prostitution, its divination, its fortune-telling. He even Solomon even built... Um, places for these false gods and their idols to be worshipped. And someone has written that Solomon loved God with part of his heart and he divided up the rest of his heart into 1,000 pieces that he distributed among his idol-worshipping wives and concubines. 
So as time went on, Solomon drifted from his first love and no longer loved the Lord with all his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength. So in closing, fathers are to admonish their children, remember the Lord's law and his commandments. To admonish their children to trust the Lord with all their heart. To admonish their children to fear the Lord and depart from evil. Fathers are to admonish their children to honor the Lord from their wealth. And then to admonish their children to submit to the Lord's discipline. From Proverbs chapter 3 in the life of Solomon, we learn that fathers are also to finish well. To be an example to the children of one who faithfully submits to all the scripture exhortations and warnings to obey God's law and his commandments. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we ask that you would use this, this, this time in your word to spur us on to love and to good deeds, especially as fathers, Lord, who you call to lead their families. We ask that it would be done to the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.